0: Good morning, church. It's great to see you this morning, those who are here with us in the building and those who are with us online. It's great to be present and in community with one another today. Thanks so much for being here worshiping the Lord with us. Our monthly memory verse for the month of July is found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. We'll say it together now. Only let each person Lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Very good. We are continuing in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're getting into some really fun chapters Over the next few weeks. And uh, I had a a number of folks uh, approach me already this morning and say, Looking forward to the next few weeks. With kind of a twinkle in their eye as they said it. But in all seriousness, over the course of the next five to six weeks, we'll be taking time uh, to study just this one chapter of Paul's letter to the people of God in Corinth. And this is a very full and emotionally charged section or portion of Paul's letter. Paul is going to delve into some very intimate and relational topics and matters. And as we move forward together as a body of Christ, there's a few considerations for us that I would like us to keep in mind. First, there is something of significance here applicable for everyone in every part of this chapter. And so I want to remind us that sometimes it seems that it can be our habit to tune out portions of the scripture that on the outside may appear that they do not apply to our personal lives. So sometimes if I'm a married person, I might avoid portions of scripture that address widows or those who are single. And I would say and encourage us that this would be a misguided approach to studying and applying the word of God. All scripture is for us. All scripture is applicable, and yes, some scriptures may be more applicable to us based on our current circumstances in life, but what we must remember is that we have been and are called into community with one another to lay down our lives for one another, And so for me, if if I know how the Bible applies to those who are walking in a different season of life than I myself might be, one way that I might glean insight into how I could effectively lay down my life for my brother or sister is to pay attention to those portions of Scripture. Scripture. And we need to tune into all of this, to glean from Paul's words, to better understand the lives that others in our faith community have been called to live, and to better understand the complexity of the lives that they're living and the calling that the Lord has placed on their life. And while we personally might not directly relate to every word that Paul mentions here in our current life circumstances, I guarantee there is someone in our faith community who does, and we need to love one another enough to lean in and learn from one another's walks. There's a second consideration. What might not apply to us right now in our current life circumstance might very well apply to us later. So Paul's words throughout this chapter, uh, that some are related and given to married and some to single and widowed and divorced and maybe otherwise. But they help give us guidance when we find ourselves in life circumstances that are different than the ones that we're in right now. Church, our widows or our friends who've experienced the heartache and pain of divorce, they know this to be true. Because at one time, their life circumstance was different. And at that time, a different portion of this chapter applied directly to their situation. But now, another portion applies more clearly. So we are reminded that all portions of this chapter are profitable and useful for us. Either for now, or perhaps for in future circumstance. Finally, a final consideration. Paul does not intend for chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians to be his full dissertation or teaching on marriage, singleness, widowhood, or divorce. Paul speaks in many other letters to many other churches on these topics and the topics that he will address here. And as we've already heard, many of these topics are emotionally charged and many have a broad range of interpretations and applications within the Christian faith community. This is not all Paul has to say on these matters. Christ followers all over the world understand and apply Paul's teachings in these chapters in different ways. And so I want to encourage The faith community here at CNBC of this. If you hear something over the course of the next five to six weeks that is new to you or that causes you to wrestle or question or to further explore, well, one, that's a good thing, I think. But two, wrestle with the text first before you come and wrestle with your pastor. And look around and just think island, beach, wonderful things. I will ask for your grace, for your understanding over the next number of weeks as we wade through a number of topics. And I want to explain to you all that Paul really grabs hold of in this chapter because it's full. He's going to talk about equality and sexual intimacy within marriage. It's going to come up today. He's going to talk about singleness, widows, widowers. He's going to talk about marriage, divorce, with implications for remarriage. He's going to talk about marriage to someone who has not yet believed. He's going to address the priority of upholding one's calling. He's going to identify distresses of of some who are single and yet desire to be married. He's going to talk about the anxieties and the challenges of the marriage relationship. And he's going to discuss what happens when a marriage is disrupted by the death of a spouse. And as we unpack these challenges that were and still are facing the church, we will continue to explore the answer to the question that has guided our study throughout this letter to this point. How do we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? And in future weeks, this question may be related to those who are single or divorced or even those who are married to an unbeliever. But specifically today, we might ask, how can healthy intimacy within our marriage relationships Help us to live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. You want to take your Bibles and turn there. We're going to be there for the next number of weeks. Get familiar with this chapter. Read it during the week. Reread it. Wrestle with it. Tie it back to other teachings of Paul and other letters. I look forward to the time that we spend together In this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, today we're in verses 1 to 7, let's pray. Father, we come to you now as a community of saints surrounding your word, looking forward to how your spirit is going to move within our midst. We open this chapter, Lord, with humble hearts and spirits, knowing that you intend to teach us, knowing that the same matters that Paul was facing and addressing in the church many years ago are still matters that are real and relevant to our church today. And so we know, Father, that there are things for us here today that you intend to use to help us grow, to help us grow in our love for you and to help us grow in our love for one another. And so as we explore these words in the pages of your scripture, we pray that your spirit would be at work now, moving, guiding, directing, opening our hearts and minds to what you have in store for us. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. First Corinthians chapter seven, verses one to seven. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man Not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise... The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. So, as we examined last week, Paul has just exhorted the people of God in Corinth at the end of the chapter to flee sexual immorality, to not be involved in consuming one another or using another person solely for the purpose of self-gratification. So as it relates to the opening statement in verse one, Paul agrees. It is good for a man not to dishonor a woman or a woman not to dishonor a man by engaging in sexual intimacy outside of marriage. What Paul has recognized and been made aware of is that even within the marriage relationship and within the community of faith, there was confusion regarding what healthy sexual practice between a husband and a wife actually looked like. And this continues today. Whether in pre-marriage, marriage, marriage, or marriage counseling sessions, one of the topics that by far garners the most emotions and often confronts and uncovers the most difficulty is the topic of physical and sexual intimacy between marriage partners. And Paul is going to begin to explore this matter at a practical level. And so he concludes in verse 2 that... Because of the temptation of sexual sin, that it was better that each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. What Paul is doing here is he's affirming an ethic for marriage and for sexual purity that extends all the way back to the beginning and is resoundingly communicated throughout the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become as one flesh. Proverbs chapter 5, later on in the Old Testament, verses 15 and 18. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And if we reflect back on last week, Paul is also setting up an ethic for sexual intimacy in marriage that would consistently and regularly brush up against what was socially and culturally accepted in his time. Remember the quote from last week from the respected uh, Republican or public publican in the corinthian society his name was athenaeus and he said this if you remember quote we keep mistresses for pleasure concubines for daily concubinage but wives in order to produce children legitimately and to have a trustworthy guardian of our domestic property end quote This attitude very well within the church and certainly outside of the church may have led to what would have been a very dour and emotionless experience when it came to intimacy within the marriage relationship. There were many who believed and who practiced that intimacy with one spouse was only for the purpose of procreation. With no thought given to pleasure, passion, desire for one another's bodies and to some within the church these were emotions and feelings that were even perhaps incompatible with christianity emotions that were best reserved for one's concubine or mistress paul is disagreeing sex and all of the emotions that are tied up within it were and are to be expressed fully and only in the marriage relationship. And it is in the marriage relationship, friends, where a couple can find God-honoring intimacy. And according to Paul, the trappings of sexual immorality are deflected as desire is fulfilled through the giving up of our bodies for the good of one another. Each man who might otherwise be tempted towards sexual sin, Paul is instructing to have his own wife. And each woman who may otherwise be tempted towards sexual sin is to have her own husband. And in such a relationship, we are to cling to one another, finding a level of codependency. I need you. You need me. Both of us need the Lord, too, too. Have become one. It is a mystery that even Paul himself could not begin to unpack, and so too will we not fully unravel in the short time we have here on earth. Now, Paul isn't going to stop in verse 2. I know sometimes we've joked before about going digging, and I've told you to get your shovels out. Get your life jackets out today. Paul's taking us into deep waters. He's about to move us into the deep waters of physical intimacy in the marriage relationship. And you know, friends, some have suggested that maybe the church avoid these types of passages. You know, they're, they're very charged emotionally and socially and they're topics of a sensitive nature. Maybe we would do better to just not discuss them on a Sunday morning. Maybe they're best in a small group or in an ABF. I get that. I, I hear that. And maybe there's some weight to that. But, you know, I also believe that there's a place for the public proclamation of the full word of God beginning to end. And so we don't hide from these matters. We don't skirt around them. We address them and we look at them together as a body of Christ and we learn. So how does physical intimacy in the marriage relationship really work towards the glory of God and the good of one another what does the mystery of two becoming one communicate about the example of jesus and a portion of the answers to these questions lie in verses three and verses four and friends i cannot this morning overstate to you how groundbreaking and forward-thinking paul's conclusions in verses three and verses four would have been to both the believing and the unbelieving world of people who were existing in Corinth. Let's start with verse 3. Take a look. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise the wife to her husband. The verb that sticks out to me in verse 3 I believe is a powerful verb. It's the verb to Give. To give something as precious as our bodies to our spouse and to give it as something that is actually rightfully theirs is an act of humility and an act of sacrifice. And the implications for this within the marriage relationship are enormous. And it is not easy. No one would declare that it is husband to wife, wife to husband. Not always. The noun that flashes brightly is this word, rights. We don't often see that word in the Bible. We don't often think of that word, especially as it relates to physical intimacy in marriage. But yet it's the word that Paul uses. The husband and the wife give to one another that which is their right. Physical And sexual intimacy, church, is part of the marriage contract. It's part of the mystery of two becoming one. And we have remarked many times before that Paul's knowledge of the Old Testament informed his instruction to New Testament churches that he ministered to. And here again, we can reach back into the book of Exodus and see a similar pattern of teaching. Exodus chapter 21, if a man takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or what? Her marital rights. It connotates the same understanding of the New Testament, her conjugal rights. And if he does not do these things, these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without any payment of money, meaning she had the right to leave or divorce this man free from having to pay any money. And the context of this passage in Exodus is in relationship to a wife that had been taken as a war slave. So it could follow that if the above were true for a slave who was taken as a wife, how much more so should it be true for a woman and a man Who were freely married. Paul is saying in this text that the proper posture of both a husband and a wife. Regarding sexual intimacy in marriage is to give rather than demand. To give rather than demand. And so here is where we find at times within the church. The weaponization of scripture that has no place within the confines of a biblical view of marriage. When it comes to physical and sexual intimacy in the marriage relationship, there is no place for patriarchy. Sexual intimacy is a co-equal, co-dependent contract in the marriage relationship. This reality is exactly why Paul's teaching on sex within marriage is so groundbreaking. Paul maintains an ethic of equality that leaves no room for abuse or coercion or manipulation. And where in verse 3, Paul begins with the husband and then moves towards the wife, he's going to invert that structure in verse 4, beginning with the wife, to help us see that when it comes to physical and sexual intimacy in the marriage, there is complete equality in both rights and authority. Look at verse 4. This is groundbreaking, friends, at the time. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And here's the one, the line. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Paul's words, not your pastor's. Wrestle with him this week. That a woman would have any authority at all let alone authority over his husband's body, would have been almost a sort of cultural or social heresy. Yet this is exactly what Paul is purposing in the marriage relationship as it pertains to physical intimacy. Again, What was new in that culture was not so new within the framework of a full and whole biblical worldview. These patterns were established long ago in the Old Testament. And they come out in books like the Song of Solomon. Ironically, books which are often avoided, especially on Sunday mornings in church gatherings. But this is a woman speaking beautifully. In the book of Song of Solomon's and it's in Song of Solomon, it's true. My beloved is what? Mine. And I am his. And that line occurs over and over and over again throughout that book. When our desire is for our beloved and we seek her best interest and desire to affirm and honor and edify and cherish her, then the risks of abusing verses three to four as they've been abused throughout the church falls dramatically. Husbands, I'm going to preach to myself and I'm going to preach to all of us, our bodies belong to our wives they're hers not ours so if we're using our bodies to harm our wives she has the right to tell us to knock it off husbands me too our bodies belong to our wives If we are asking our wives to use their bodies in a way that makes her feel uncomfortable, then our wives have the right to ask us to increase their pleasure by not demanding such actions or behaviors from them. And here within lies a perplexing matter that begins to materialize in this verse. It's a matter that author and theologian John Piper keenly exposes. Couples who are seeking to apply this verse consistently and practically in marriage might occasionally find themselves in what may be considered a bit of a logical stalemate. Let me explain as John Piper does, quoting him. Quote, If her body is his and his body is hers, then each has authority over the other's body. Then he has the authority to ask her to do something he would find pleasurable. And she has the authority over his body to ask that he increase her pleasure by not asking that she do that. End quote. Friends, this is all part of the mystery of two becoming One, we can't figure it out. We can't create a law for it. We won't fully grasp it or understand it here on this side of heaven. But what we do understand from Paul's teaching is that physical intimacy in marriage is a matter of mutual submission to one another's authority over each other's body. Husbands, Submit to the authority of your wives over your body. Wives do likewise. But both do so in a way that mutually glorifies God and honors one another. And all of this works so much more naturally when both parties of the couple have committed and submitted themselves unto Christ. This is hard When one member of the couple is saved and the other is not. It's hard to grasp this and practice this. Some of us know and have experienced this. Or have family who have gone through it. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself, laid his own body down for his bride Not by demanding submission and ruling with an iron scepter, but rather by following the gentle example of the one who demonstrated the greatest act of love and sacrifice that was ever known to humanity. And wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, not out of obligation, but in joy as an opportunity to glorify God and elevate Christ in the marriage and in the home. Within the confines of marriage as it pertains to physical and sexual intimacy, Paul's teaching does not allow for any tyranny or autocracy. And marriages that enjoy a healthy level of God-glorifying physical intimacy are patterned by humility, self-sacrifice, and mutual submission to one another's authority over each other's bodies church men women all of us those who are married i understand we can all understand life gets busy kids go crazy work is hard Meetings and co-workers demand high levels of focus and energy and attention. Our time is full and heavily taxed. We come home tired. We're worn out. We're emotionally and socially and physically spent. Kids have been climbing on us all day, hanging and scratching for our attention. The dishes in the sink are dirty. The laundry's spilling over. We have nothing left to give. We've all been there. Those who are married. We crawl into bed. The lights go out. We're fatigued beyond belief. We can give no more than a good night's kiss. And this becomes the pattern and reality for couples for weeks, for months, and maybe even for years. And then the words begin. If she would just do this, then maybe I would be able to be a little bit more intimate with her. Well, if he would just... Whatever. Unmet and uncommunicated expectations leave wounds and scars. Or they've created a soil where resentment and criticism of one another begin to grow. Intimacy wanes. Marriages begin to suffer. And some begin to fall apart more than even finances in marriage, sexual and physical intimacy is a huge matter for couples. And we can't make this physical and sexual intimacy in our marriages a matter of demands and rewards. It should not be that way. It's a dangerous place to go. When He does this, then I will go ahead and do this. Or if she does that, then I'll go ahead and do this. Paul says this is not how it's supposed to work. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. There is one concession Paul makes for depriving one another from sexual intimacy. But this is only for a time and when there's mutual agreement between the couples in the party. And the purpose is that the couple may come together and devote themselves to prayer. I actually I was friends at a time in my life with a couple, they now live on the West Coast, that practiced this. They did this annually. Every year they picked a season of time that they would abstain to devote themselves to prayer. And they used this text, this passage of Scripture to identify why, indeed, they did this. And this concession might be used for a married couple when there's a matter of significant importance that they desire to take before the Lord for a season. It could be praying about a career transition. It could be family planning matters. It could be uh, matters related to a child's growth or discipline or development or whatever other concerns are deemed important. But what is clear is that when the agreed-upon time has ended... Look at what Paul says in the second part of verse 5. The couple was what? To come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so here, once again, we see healthy sexual intimacy within marriage and the marriage relationship as a safeguard against the temptations of sexual sin, Abstaining from physical intimacy or sex for too long in a marriage, Paul suggests could very well give the devil a foothold in your relationship. And the this that we see at the end of verse 6, there's a lot of debate among commentators over where that you attach that quote-unquote this. As I've studied and read, most commentators are attaching the it, this at the end of verse 6 to verse 5. In other words, Paul, his concession is not regarding marriage in general, but rather regarding his instructions in verse 5, that he's understanding that not every married couple is going to do this for a season in their relationship. And that's okay. That's why this is a concession, not a command. How did Paul himself feel personally about these matters? It is widely held that at one point Paul had been married, but we now know at this time that he is single. Why? Why why was it held that Paul at one point was married? Well, many scholars agree that the Scriptures support, especially in the book of Acts, that Paul was at one time a member of the Sanhedrin. Some of you may have heard that before or have understood that before membership into the Sanhedrin required the man to be married. It was not optional. So if indeed Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, then at one point in his life he was married. But also as a Pharisee or as the self-described Hebrew of Hebrews that Paul claimed that he was, marriage would have been considered to a Pharisee their rightful duty or obligation As a good Jewish man, they would be married. But at this point in his life, Paul was single. So either he had been widowed or divorced, or perhaps he never was married if he never was a member of the Sanhedrin. uh, We're uncertain. Some scholars have suggested that Paul's wife, if he had had one, may have struggled with both his change of convictions and his loss of status after his conversion to Christianity Leading to a divorce, others suggested that his wife had simply passed away. He was now living as a widower. Today, we're uncertain. We don't fully know. Guess what? One day, we'll know. One day, we'll get to be in in heaven with the Lord, and we'll fully know the status of Paul. We know, though, right now, as we'll see next week, and as we see in verse 7, that at this time in his life, he was single. He's not hiding his own personal feelings about all this and all these matters, is he? Look at verse 7. Look at how he concludes today's text. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. In his current state of singleness, Paul must have experienced freedom from the temptation of sexual sin. And he viewed this as a gift from God. Otherwise, he would have had to follow the instructions he gave at the beginning of this text. If he was struggling with sexual sin, it would have been better for him to take a wife and to marry. So obviously, at this point in his life, he had had some freedom from that as he was a single man. For those who are married, our gift is different from those who are single. And for those who are single and desire to marry... What is your gift now may change as the Lord directs that special person into your life. The question is, how do we live as disciples of Jesus as we take this text into consideration and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? Considering the text today, we may conclude this. Affirming and valuing one another's gifts and callings We practice humility and sacrifice, laying down our lives for one another. Those who are single, exercising their gift and pursuing the calling God has placed on their life. And those who are married, taking care in their physical intimacy to not diminish, disrupt, or dishonor the gift and the call that God has given to them. Neil and Nancy are going to come and lead us in a final hymn today when we all get to heaven before they come. Let's pray.